David Kern. I'm Heidi White. I'm Sean Johnson. And I'm Daniel Nayeri. That's right. This is Close Reads, a podcast for the incurable reader on which we are discussing Daniel Nayeri's book with Daniel Nayeri. Daniel, we are so thrilled to have you here to talk about everything sad is untrue, to answer some questions. Uh, it's just, it's an honor to have, to have you here. Thank you for having me. It's an honor to be here. I, I, I you know, I, I think, um, yeah, close reading is just the biggest honor you can possibly have. So this is my, uh, my cup of tea and my favorite kind of podcast. So thank you. Well, we're going to turn uh, things over here to a bunch of questions from the audience on our Substack page, uh, closereads.substack.com, for those who don't know, and also on our Facebook page, Facebook group. Uh, but first, though, um, Heidi, yes. you claim to be Daniel's greatest number one fan. So given that... Do you want to? Do you want to say anything? Do we need to get some fangirling out of the way? Well, like anything like that you need I to publicly did. say off the you air did before we hit record. Before yeah, we hit record. so I want to yeah. shame myself before our listeners. <laughs> but my voice was like an octave higher. I said a lot of things, <laughs> but now I'm I've pulled myself together. You're, You're a professional cool. again. Yeah, yeah, I'm cool. That's well, cool. I I, uh, I was listening. I really appreciate it. And but you did ask one question that I can answer right away. Which was, oh, okay, there we go. Was, uh, is he go. really a pastry chef? And if we say he isn't, <laughs> would he bring would he bring like cream puffs and stuff to yeah. to the recording? And I, the answer is, yeah, I will. I totally will. It's right here. <laughs> oh my oh, god! That looks amazing. Uh, strawberry milfoy with with a little bit of you know cream in between the layers. <laughs> I, I'm happy to eat it in front of you and tell you. Yeah, please do. Yeah, take a bite. I'll pour myself a cup of coffee, and then <laughs> yeah. I'll take a sip of coffee. You take yeah. a bite of that, yeah. and then right. it'll be like a holistic. That looks amazing. But how did turn listeners? Off? I want you to see this. It's like <laughs> snack time on Withy Windle, but it's on close reads. <laughs> so this is a grown-up Withy Windle snack. Hold it up. Hold really... it up, Daniel. I'm oh, gonna take sorry, a picture. Just... Oh, oh, nice. Yeah. I don't know if it'll photograph great through a screen, but. In the you know in the arts it's hard to be you're you're quite subjective about assessing your own work in terms of writing or things like that but sure. when it comes to food you just put it Food's in your mouth easy. and yeah. you can judge and I gotta tell you <laughs> Heidi this is spectacular it's, it's, of course it is I would well, expect right. nothing less from the author <laughs> of everything sad is untrue <laughs> well it's also an enticement all, all three of you uh, come to my house and I will cook for you please done so you're in South Carolina right. I am well just outside of Charlotte, but yeah, on the yeah, other side yeah. of the border. Yeah, 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 you're like an hour from me. So, oh, nice. Yeah, I'll show up, consider I'll show this up with your, some wine. Yeah, consider this your invite, please. Perfect. Um, I, I say this to, to a lot of folks. I, I, you know, I'd love to cook for you, John. I also have a question. I have, a, I have an answer for you. this, uh, this deckled edge business. <laughs> oh, man, no. Sean, my man, my man, Sean, we got to talk. Uh, we, yeah, uh, yeah, here it is. Top yeah, of your deckled edges are the best I've ever seen. I appreciate that. No, no, I appreciate it. No. The beef with deckled edges. Here's the thing. First okay. of all, first of all, I'm hanging on to this career by a thread. All right. <laughs> oh. Sean, so, come on. You got you gotta work with me. I don't want to make any trouble. Deckled edges are the as best as I could, I can I can sort of explain them because you're not wrong. They're a holdover. They are they're very much a a fraudulent uh, throwback to the olden days of bookbinding, but and here's my best my best sort of reasoning for them is right. they're the only uh, thing in the book world that does the same function as um, a for your consideration campaign. 
right? So mm. in, the, in the film TV world, you have yourself a movie and you're like, oh, this oh. one's kind of art house. We might be able to win some awards with this. It's not gauche to have your marketing team run an entire campaign that puts like uh, Matt Damon's face on a billboard and yeah. says like best supporting actor for your consideration. If you were to ever do that in the book world, um, all the, the librarians who, of course, give the awards and deliberate on these things would find that so crass and would immediately yeah. revolt against whatever. But you could put the best book of the year on a billboard. But you slap the ledges on there and they know. <laughs> there you go. You put that ledges on there and it's like we spent extra money to be inconvenient <laughs> for no other reason than to signal that we have placed this book in the category of the olden books. Is the you book. know, what about I, something like nah. Ribbon Bookmark? What is that? <laughs> Unless Tom, it's a journal. How does this feel, by the way? <laughs> so, this is what ranting gets you a reasonable yeah. explanation. But, but, but what he's yeah. saying is it's kind of all commercial, right? Like, <laughs> yeah, pretty much. But it's it's like, no, let me give you a so food example. Says it's survival. <laughs> I'll give you, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I need, I, they, they, they offered to pay extra for it. I'm not going to say no. Um, yeah, right. Food example. Food example from my man, Sean, here. Here we go. Uh, here we go. You know, in the food world, as you know, you got to put the money on the plate, right? So That's right. If, if, for example, I'm in the dessert space, right? If someone, if I were to put a pound cake on the menu, I would never in a million years plate that pound cake by cutting it vertically because that's what a pound cake looks like when you buy it in a store. <laughs> and if I were to do that, you might mistake and think that I did not, you know, stand in the back for nine hours. This making, is store-bought pound cake. Yeah. yeah. Store-bought pound cake. And if I make it look like store-bought pound cake, it feels like store-bought pound cake and it's no longer worth $17.95 a plate. <laughs> that's right. Because you can you can get it for two dollars. So you've got to like for no other reason than that, I gotta shape it to look like a you know non-commercialized. So you know, Sean, he's plating, some deck edges on he's plating his story for you. Oh, and you took yeah. it and you no, threw it across no, the room. No. You sent it back to the kitchen. Then <laughs> it back to and you oh, said no. and you said, put this on a paper plate. Yeah, can I and get drizzle some maple, some 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 maybe yeah, some ketchup over it? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, uh, Daniel, have you have you watched the show The Bear yet? Yes. Oh my gosh! Of course. Oh man. Yeah. So Heidi was just starting watching this, and she texted oh, me yeah, and Sean. Heidi. Sean and I love this show, yeah. and she's like, "It's so stressful. Does it get? Is it worth it?" <laughs> Yeah. Uh, up until that show, I had always dreamed about writing a kitchen show, right? Like there's every, no one's nailed it. <laughs> Nobody has, has given you the experience of being in a kitchen. And then I watched that show and I was like, well, I can just cross that that's off it. my yeah. ideas yeah. list. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The stress, that's what the blood really pressure. Like? That's what oh, it's yeah. really like. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I worked yeah. in a, my grandparents burger place as a high schooler where my <laughs> uncle was the manager and it still felt like that, except there was less F-bombs. <laughs> the high-end kitchens, I think there's just a lot of F-bombs. Do you all have so, ulcers? I Like, are you okay? That, it's pretty intense, but it's, it's also really, it is the, um, imagine, imagine a job that has that kind of stress and then immediately when it's over, it just all pours out of you. Mm. There's there's no such thing as an email on a Wednesday, on a Saturday that yeah. causes a massive emergency, right? Inner service there's... doesn't follow you home. Right. And yeah. people tell you right away how you did. Exactly. Yeah, that's right. You, did, they, you know, it's in the eating. Because they put so, it in their mouth. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, have you watched <laughs> season two yet, Daniel? I have. And it has a scene that... Um, 
is the most that I uh, sort of respond to because in the bakery side, you often show up when the kitchen's empty. Yeah. Um, and so there's a scene where two characters are just rolling um, dough and having a long conversation about life. And the shot is just them, like yeah. on them and you're watching um, them roll. And there's nothing else to do, but like go real deep, real fast. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. I yeah. have been there. I have, you know, the ones I remember uh, cutting up hundreds of pounds of strawberries they had they were in season they delivered just just a pallet of strawberries and <laughs> my job was to process them cut them up because we were going to make um enough strawberry preserves for the menu for the whole season mm-hmm. and so i'm just sitting there cutting strawberries for hours and my boss at the time sashi and i just stood there and we talked about her whole life and she, mm. you know we, we go you get pretty personal about it and next thing you know, he really wrote a book me. about her he book wrote a book about her life called everything's so true he put his own name in it <laughs> that's right <laughs> yeah, she's, she's a persian refugee it's very weird <laughs> there's um, a there's a scene in season two where they're all stressed because they're trying to open this restaurant and um they're just passing a bottle of pepto around and that is answers the question that Heidi asked is do you all yeah. have ulcers it's kind of like right there but that show as someone who as opened an ulcer. up business and has is consistently yeah stressed um it's different than work my job is very different like when you're open the vibes are very different than hmm. being in the kitchen but running a small business and trying to being constantly hyper aware of the experience that people are having in it, hmm. it and trying to build something Season two of that show where they're trying to open a restaurant has never spoken to me more than any <laughs> other thing I've ever watched is them trying to open this restaurant. And it helped me that they That's were great. doing something that I don't do, but that I love. You know, I love cooking. I love food. So they're doing something that I kind of always dream of doing, but it still spoke to that sense, the, the, the stresses and the, and the drive that you have to create something great, which I think all of us can kind of appreciate because it's also probably a little bit what it feels like to to write a book. So that brings us to these questions. That's a, that's my transition. Nice. Let's start with this one. And Daniel, if you want anytime, I'll just say this. Anytime you want us to respond to something as well, please feel free to defer. Um, and then Heidi and Sean jump in too. Like if you want to push oh, back or not push back, but um, uh, if you want to get clarification on some answer or you want to just jump in the conversation, let's do it. Let's make it a conversation. As, as Daniel said, Here's one from Aaron who says something that has stuck with me about your incredible book. There's a lot of compliments in these questions too, Daniel. So <laughs> just disregard all the compliments. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Something that has stuck with me about your incredible book is the way that you present your mom's conversion. It could easily have come across as preachy or evangelistic, and it could have just as easily come off as disdainful as if she were absolutely for having done such a thing. But you managed to convey that your mom was simultaneously crazy and incredibly strong. You clearly have respect for what she did, but you're not necessarily turning this into a Sunday school lesson. I'd like to hear if you found that a difficult uh, that difficult to balance, or if that came pretty naturally to you. So that's Aaron's question. No, it was the, it was one of the hardest parts. Um, and in fact, you know, I, I initially wrote this book, um, we, trying to trying to avoid that. Um, for so many reasons, right? Uh, one of them being maybe maybe the um, the the you know just the socio political right of it's it's the actual sure. crime right. So um, 
uh, trying trying to maybe think about it from the perspective of being very trying to handle it in a very soft way. Um, that was very quickly set aside. I, I started writing this book when I was nineteen, so as a, you know, even as a nineteen year old, I could have told you you just can't write the story without that. It's kind of the centerpiece of why everything happens, so yeah. you couldn't avoid it. But um, but then yeah, so then the problem becomes how best to to show it and. Um, in order, in order for for a lot of reasons, I mean, clearly, um, clearly, anytime religion, a lot of people say is the last frontier of of a lot of of literature, especially literature for kids. It's not a topic that people touch. It's not a topic that people have a sense of humor about. Um, and so, I wanted to present it in that sort of puzzling way that my younger self experienced in it, and that allowed me to get into it, which was which was this question of it would be very hard um, to interpret my mother if you had met her, hung out with her as um, someone who is a pragmatist. She's not pragmatic in, in any way, but also mm. I think I think when I tell, used to tell a story to like my New York friends, and, and I say that as maybe a shorthand for friends of mine who are not religious or anything like that, we might be in a bar, mm. I might be telling them my story for you know various reasons. And inevitably that question would come up like, so then why did she do it? And there would be times where some of someone else like, who's in the group would be like, well, it's just so much better here, right? Like the, their immediate answer for themselves mm. was, well, the pragmatic person would look at an Iranian culture, see that there's this woman who is educated and is very much, she's energetic. She, she would, um, do better in a freer society, let's say, and and so and want to leave this sort of you know patriarchal, misogynistic kind of thing. I would never say that that's not true about Iranian culture that women don't have a, a difficult time or anything like that. But I can only address it from the perspective of my mother. She didn't have those problems with it because she was very mm. devoutly Muslim. Um, and so there wasn't this easy answer of, well, here's this woman. She valorizes and, you know, desires the West. And so she'll say and do anything in order to get to that better place. Um, that just wasn't mm. the story. That may be someone's story. I'm not um, denying it could happen. It just wasn't hers. And so one of the early parts of the book was trying to address this. I know your perception of Iran might be that she was miserable, that she had nothing, but the reality is she had quite a lot. Um, she was socially, you know, she was in the social aristocracy. One might say she was, she had her own practice. She was financially very well off. She had her whole family. She had lots of land. Like, those kinds of easy answers are are not what it was. And so now you're left with two options. And that's where you get this option of why would anybody make such a horrible trade, right? Why would anybody go down this path of doing something so irrational as to um, basically like sick the secret police on herself? Like that would be, that's a nutty thing to do, um, especially when you've got so much to lose. Yeah. So you either kind of have to start to assess her as, you know, well, that was that was a bit of madness that took over, or it could have been some, you know, irrational emotional moment or decision. Or you have to start looking at the trade and asking yourself, what did she get in return? Right? As in any rational scenario, you say, okay, well, she gave up all this stuff. What did she get in return? Is there a commensurate and equal exchange? 
And if there is, then you got to let her be, right? <laughs> and so, and that's where the faith element comes in. Like if you were to ask my mother, certainly, or, and I would say this to my friends back in that bar where they would say, okay, wait, so she had all that money and she had all that stuff. Like, so then why did she do it? It was, that was short circuiting their question of like, oh, then that's not as good a deal. Why would she do that deal? Mm. And my, the only answer is like, she did because it's true. Like she, it's true. She believes this is, this is the faith part. It's true. It's a good deal. Trade everything. Yeah. Like sell the house. And then it makes sense. Then she makes sense as a character. And so much of novel writing is motivation uh, yeah. building and, and explanation and trying to make somebody make sense to somebody else. There really isn't a way to do that without, without taking you through that, you know, one, two, three step. Did you think about uh, trying to go into her point of view and some of her experiences that led her that direction a little more deeply? Because the book is obviously told from, not from her perspective, but did you ever feel like, okay, to, to, to make it really come alive that she would do this, do I need to go into the steps that led her there? And you do a little, yeah. but... You know, she's never, you know, it's funny. Um, it, it really is pretty simple. Like, you know, it's not, there isn't, um, like she doesn't, that's an interesting position. I mean, the first and foremost that you'd have to say like, oof, a writer going into his mom's perspective as one, that would be a proper difficult challenge. Um, yeah, I'm not sure. That's, I'm not fair, sure that's I would fair. like nail that. Right. Cause <laughs> even yeah. to someone who cares about their parents and makes this attempt, like pa parents are never really people, you know, in the, <laughs> total sense of yeah, the word yeah, yeah. Um, to you. And you're so, not inventing her like where you can just decide what's going on in her point of view. Mm -hmm. yeah. Right. Yes. I wasn't going to make stuff up because she was going to read it and get mad. So there's, yeah, that, yeah, yeah. <laughs> there's that issue too. So you're right. I couldn't yeah. just um, make stuff up on the spot. And when you talk to her, like she says, look, I was a chronic scholar. I could think for her the biggest, the biggest challenge when you speak to someone in her position, which was she was very devout Muslim, is that often people, and this happens in the West as well, people are just culturally whatever they are. They're culturally Muslim, they're culturally Christian. And so to walk up and say something to them um, theologically, if they were to come across another theology, sometimes um, they might not even recognize the revolutionary aspect of whatever is being said because they can just co-opt it, right? So in Islam, it's very simple to say like, well, Jesus, yeah, he's a totally great teacher. And you're like, no, no, he's, yeah. And so you, a lot of the claims of Christianity are very easy to accept as a Muslim. So it sort of just like, sort of absorbs a lot of the exclusive claims of Christianity. And so it becomes, um, becomes a challenge. So for, you know, often my mother will say, and a lot of people who speak to the middle, middle Eastern sort of cultures and communities will say the first task is actually to educate them on what they're supposed to believe. <laughs> and then, and then sort of tell them, well, and then there's this counter program here because <laughs> it's, it's sometimes that part is the, is the mix. And so for her, she really just says, um, you know, she, was a Quranic scholar. And so she really, really knew a lot of that stuff. So the first instance in blush of reading the Bible, the differences were stark. Mm. Um, but who, I mean, I could imagine a novel touching that stuff and being interesting to a niche, but it, it wasn't, I don't think a function yeah. of the narrative. Um, Heidi, you've been writing something down there. Are you, are you writing down a follow-up question here? Is, or are you I'm, just, uh... I'm really, thinking about this this question of the motivation of characters 
uh, is a very interesting one to me in speaking about a actual living human, <laughs> right? That translation of living human to character in a story that is true, but at the same time is a novel, right? And is supposed to be a novel, um, is um, but it's like really fascinating to me because you're right. In order for you to uh for your for your mom to be believable, it has to be, you have to give her like you said, a stake in the story that that gives her a reason to give up what she had there to live the kind of life that you describe in the novel, especially at cost to her children as a mom, right? Um, mm. That's not something you do lightly. That has to be a real, a real thing. Um, and so I'm just curious about how, how you thought about that translation of human person to character in a story kind of across the board. How did you go about writing, not just your mom, but yourself and other characters in the story? And we did get a couple of iterations of this question from a few people. So that's great. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, so yeah, you know, in my early days, uh, previous to, um, well, for the last 20 years, I've been an editor in, in publishing world. And for the first 10 years, I was on the adult side. And a lot of my assignments were memoirs. And a lot some of the memoirs were um, uh, sort of celebrities, celebrities who had a particular angle, like they were political figures who were you know prominent. And so they needed every story in their life to kind of give their political agenda so they would chop down the cherry tree but then they'd have to go you know be honest about it and of course and everything everything would have to be this way right like their babe their favorite tricycle was a red tricycle and that meant something or they had the you know the bluest blankies and it was just it was just so weird um because you would kind of you would have these ghostwriters the ghostwriters would know the assignment so that's kind of what they were doing um and and the political memoir is a particularly odd one at that because it's usually also a platform to launch a campaign off of. And for celebs, it's usually a platform to do a press junket. And so they kind of have to do certain things. And so I, I've read a lot of memoirs that have um, agendas, not so deeply buried <laughs> underneath. Um, yeah. And and then there's, of course, the, the tell-all memoir, the sort of famous musical band act memoir, anything like that. And that's just... Prince, us Prince Harry's new... Like, just, just <laughs> muckrake as much as possible. Like, if yeah. you could, like... If there's a named character and you don't have something snarky to say about them, I'm not sure we need them, right? Like, um, and that... That's also an agenda. So a lot of the a lot of memoirs are, and some of them maybe more deftly so, but are fundamentally a an exercise in look at me. Just look at me, please. I'm, you know, and it is a it's a desperate thing. Um, to watch them get made is a particularly um it's a heartbreaking thing um, because I've, I have in the past read memoirs of people I thought were heroes and, and, you know, I, I guess I just never noticed that all those anecdotes make you seem like the funny one and all those anecdotes, <laughs> you came up with those ideas in the room and, and the, it's such a grab at the narrative. They needed um, more poop stories. They need more poop stories. <laughs> right. and, and one of the, and so when I, I decided to, you know, I was, I was working on this, um, uh, that was a major part of what I was thinking is how, how can I detach myself from the desires of a memoirist, which are to make myself 
you know, have, have the, the interesting idea. If you'll note this character, um, I, I talk about him as a character. I wrote this very much as a memoir. So it is me, but for the purposes of our conversation, let me just call him Hosro. Um, Cause he is 12 and he is a, I, I constructed him. I wanted very much for him to sort of um, present certain anti-memoirist elements. Once he's the hero story, as you'll note, he's, he doesn't even go, he's not the one who instigates the hero's journey, doesn't enact <laughs> the hero's journey. Um, even in the scenes where he could be the brave one, he's not some of those scenes, you know, even when, um, and, and he, and he's terrible at storytelling. <laughs> so there's very, there's very little actually to go for in terms of if you were to look at all of us and pick the perspective to write from, um, I think he would probably be, uh, one of the last choices, you know, he, he's the least educated, least, uh, intelligent, um, you know, least well-versed in any kind of language, least, I mean, just kind of least of the bunch. Um, and so, yeah, so I, I think that that was a proper difficult challenge, but it was also a way to absolutely avoid some of those, some of those issues as a 30, I've, I've tried to write this initially as a adult and make it a memoir um as an adult i just you know i found myself being more ennobled in that version you can't help it i'm not pretending i don't have an ego i'm not pretending i don't have right so uh, yeah but as a 12 year old it's a lot easier to do that to kind of mm. make him bumble and so yeah. if you're going to do that if the spotlight is as you said like this he is the main character but he's not the hero now you've got a larger task and so out of that desire came the necessity to go, okay, boy, I never would have thought of my mom as a person. Like she was just the lady who's supposed to take care of me. And I never would have thought of my dad. These are just the narcissism of children in regards to their parents or um, any of these people. Uh, they sort of suddenly had to pick up some of the slack um, from the perspective of, you know, lifting the the narrative, lifting it toward, yeah, yeah. you know, the the books that I would would dream of it being a part of so um, hmm. so yeah so, so it was born it was it was a backward I worked my way backwards right I didn't I didn't come in with this noble intention of a um, hagiography for my mother or anything like that I mean not that I, that I you know that came of purpose but it wasn't the what if I do that it was a what if what if memoirs didn't have to be this um, fraudulent that's interesting. Um, yeah. It's interesting that you say that because that moment, I can't remember where it is, but the moment when you say directly, my mother is the hero of the story felt to me like Hosro arriving at a conclusion through telling the story of himself. Like it didn't mm. feel like he set out to, uh, to create or idealize his mother. It felt like in telling the story, he realizes she's the hero of this story, exclamation yeah. point, right? Like, <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, so it dawns on he, him like two sentences uh, yes, before. Yeah. Yes, like you, <laughs> he arrives at that. There's this self-actualizing that happens within the story that is, I think, deftly done. And I, I like that that you're explaining kind of how that happens. So oh, there's, a, there's a question in here that, is kind of related to this that I want to bring up. Michelle Michelle um, asks this, and then Sean, I'll let you do the next one. Um, right. <clears throat> she, she says, um, 
there's another compliment here. I'll just read it for your sake. Uh, I want to say what a transformative experience reading your book was for me. It was equal parts enchanting and eviscerating in all the best ways. I was astounded by how succinctly you captured your unique stories while at the same time communicating them in such a way that tugged at the threads of universal truth and experience. So here's Michelle's question. Would you mind saying a bit more about what the process looked like on a personal level? What tools did you use to separate yourself emotionally from your experiences to share them with such candor? And then this part is really interesting. How has the crafting of these memories into stories changed the nature of them in your personal life? Oh, uh, the second ones, the second ones. Yeah, that's a good question. That's challenging. Um, well, so, so one thing I tend to reject and I hate, I hate saying this. I, I don't, I don't love, um, I don't love any answer that kind of swipes at other processes, but one process that I'll admit is very much not for me is this notion of writing as catharsis or mm -hmm. writing as jour journalistic, um, emotional, they're writing as therapy is a phrase people say a lot. And, um, um, it's not my therapy. <laughs> it's not, it's not my catharsis in, in those senses. Um, and I, and I have to say, I would really push back against that as a method for somebody who's writing for kids. Um, it's, these are other people's kids and uh, I don't have a sense of humor about anybody who comes up to mind. Like there's a very real, like, um, bonkers, uh, gorilla button on Daniel. And that's walking up to my son and doing something on toward like, and so I don't, I don't have any desire to, um, to, to sort of <clears throat> casualize that, that relationship. If you put that book in anybody's hands, but specifically in somebody who's, who's a young mind and heart, um, it's definitely not my job or my place to, um, to like invite them to my therapy session. So mm -hmm. fundamentally, um, I didn't, I wasn't going, I wasn't trying, I was thinking about that very much, um, which I know maybe even some readers would say you should probably thought about it more. <laughs> um, but <laughs> my goal was very much, um, and a big, big theme in my, in the writing of it was, um, to kind of present the, what in modern parlance we might say present the trauma without experientializing the trauma my goal would never be for somebody and a lot of people do say look it's a hard book uh, that's true yes um but um very much trying to build the tools out in because that's what this young narrator is doing he's fundamentally trying as one does in any coming of age to turn their face to adulthood and asking himself what does that actually mean um, what does it actually mean to um, build the toolkit with which to manage um, and survive childhood, which is fundamentally what adulthood is. Um, and so that's the best and um, most um, ambitious, I suppose, uh, um, goal for, for a and coming of age that, that Daniel would write anyway. Um, and so emotional distance would be required in order to build out that kind of scaffolding for, yeah. for a young reader. I also, I'll, look, I'll, I say young reader, cause that's where I am in the world of publishing and positioning, but fundamentally I think for any, for any reader, right. And this is what, why reading 
is valuable because I certainly made it to adulthood without having those tools. Um, and they were required in order for me to build them before I could write this. And so welcome to my twenties, right? You spent a decade trying to figure this stuff out. So, um, so I, I think, you know, I think any reader could use that, but I, I present, you know, I think that added um, obligation is there for that. So that's the first question. Second question, someone help me. I, that, what was the, um, how, have the, how have the memories changed? Oh, it's a personal one. Someone else can't answer that. Shoot. Uh, Sean? <laughs> Sean I'll, take, I'll take yeah. a stab at it. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, uh, well, as I said, I mean, the people who, you know, I truly, tr- you know, are, tr- are truly the ones who's, who, no, with, you know, without giving offense to everyone, you know, I obviously like my my wife, my son's opinions, these people, my family's opinions, um, those weren't really going to change. I don't, you know, from the writing of this. And so uh, it is, it is a little odd to have so many, you know, to have readers um, know so much about me. Um but I, that's just the nature of it, I suppose. And um, it's, it's been kind of really lovely. I'm a, otherwise, I'm a believe it or not, fairly private person. <laughs> <So> <laughs> I don't, I don't. Uh, not much has been affected because I don't. I, I tend to I go out in the shed and write, and that's what I was doing for the last six hours before this. And so, um, what are you writing? Should I, if I tell you here, it'll be the He's first a private time person. Are you allowed? Well, um, hey, uh, my I, and I'm an interviewer. Yeah. <laughs> It's the follow-up to everything sad is on <laughs> What? Yeah, it'll take another five years or so, but um yeah, um, so I, I it's there's everything that, sad came true. Is that what that's no. it? It's all it's true. welcome to the welcome to the yeah. Uh no, believe it or not, there's a whole lot more to say, but also um in my mind it was always three titles. Mm. It was always um I've always loved the young these sort of, I wouldn't, there's the serial memoirists on the adult side, right. Who are perfectly fine. I'm not, again, I'm not swiping at anybody, but like you have the, you know, you have the sort of uh, people who kind of every three or four years will write whatever they've been up to. And that's, that's the, you know, and then on the kid's side, there's this uh, like August tradition in my mind of like the Laura Ingalls Wilders and the Anne Shirley's right. Like (laughs) Anne of Green Gables life is there. And we, we know her. I I think I might know Anne Shirley better than I know some other people. You know, like some folks, right? Too. She's a real person. She's a real person. She's capital she's, R, like the Velveteen a, Rabbit. I'm going to meet her in the kingdom of God. Yes, she will I, be made real. I, one, I even more, yeah, even yeah. more respect over to yeah. you. But uh, <laughs> yeah, she's she is truly an achievement. I we it's weird that we don't talk about what she is in the sense that i mean again like uh, we in the adult side we have like updike's rabbit right a character who he <laughs> writes about like a bunch of times and i and, and i mean there's rabbit and then there's aunt shirley right I, yeah, this is right, you right. you see into the heart of her in such a beautiful way and hey we did a whole series of podcasts on her so you know oh, i'm gonna go back i'm gonna go oh, i love it <laughs> we in fact when COVID hit we were doing anna green gables oh that's so great so um, it's a really weird listening experience. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure. Just dreaming about Prince Edward Island over and over again. Oh, yeah, yeah, um, oh, yeah. But Boisterous. anyway, I, I, so I, the the answer to your question is, I, you know, I, I wanted to make an attempt at that um, as a character that you might grow with. Um, mm. that, so he makes a pretty big leap. He's a very different person. Um, and then the third one, it's like graduation. It's like late high school. So very, very different. Um, 
from a literary perspective, I really perceive certain challenges in each one that I'm very excited about. I, it will not see the light of day. Just to be real clear, it will not <laughs> see the light. I've, it's a, there's a pause button on it um, until like People I'm, stop I'm very, interviewing you in the afternoons. <laughs> well, no, <laughs> not just I. I would I would hate to have uh, you know. I think I think um, you know. I got I got pretty lucky with everything sad in the sense of. Um, you know, people read it, which was really nice. And, and I wouldn't like to, for it to be a, um, uh, you know, an attempt at grabbing the microphone again, I would just, if it achieves its goals of taking this character to a new height, um, in the way that man, Anne Shirley at the beginning is nothing like Anne Shirley at the end. Like she's just, <laughs> yeah. And so that's what, to me, she really is the the high watermark of that uh, Updike's character is just Updike again. Like, uh, what, yeah, yeah. <laughs> what is <laughs> What does he learn other than like you can get away with more if you just get richer? But um, uh, so I I think the um, the if it does that, then it'll it'll see the light of day. Otherwise, it'll just it'll be you know disappeared. But um, but yeah. Well, they thought Emily Dickinson's poetry was going to get disappeared too, and uh, you know. bro, she didn't have a delete button. I got. No, no, I, that's, I, that's, I, that's a great point. <laughs> they had to burn a hole. They had to actually put in a fire. Sean, go ahead. You got a question? Uh, yeah. Well, I have. I have one that's related to some of the process talk we've been doing. Daniel, did you always know that this was going to be a book for young people? Uh, was that something that you came around to, or you know, deciding what the audience for this book was primarily, and, and how did you do that? No, I mean, initially, look, I mean, the books I dream dreams about are like my, you know, Calvino and and Karen, Karen Russell and um, 100 Years of Solitude, right? So, I mean, that, you know, what I wanted was Rushdie to put his hand on my shoulder and say, like, <laughs> it's your turn, you know, like that was, I'm 19, please, like, you know, don't, right. I don't assume that this will happen to me. I was, um, you know, this sort of arrogance of youth, but um, no, initially I thought it was going to be a literary adult thing um interestingly it, it uh as i said it was kind of emotionally i, I you know that just the first uh section i wrote the very first chapter of the adult literary version was freeing mr sheep sheep <laughs> and writing that from an adult perspective is a completely <laughs> broken scene it's absolutely um because the the turn of that scene is that he realizes he's mr sheep sheep right the, the whole turn is he's like Oh, my dad is freeing me. Not, I'm not freeing Mr. Sheep. And he doesn't understand. And he hides in the fact that he doesn't understand. He doesn't actually reveal that revelation, uh, you know, that as right. much. He's just saying, like, doing this to Mr. Sheep Sheep would be cruel. And um, and what he's sort of emotionally leaking to the uh, uh, audience, of course, is like, don't do this to me, please. Um a 36-year-old grown man sort of saying this <laughs> it, with, in, with retrospect and all these things, it really, um, it was a poor scene and maybe a better writer could have pulled <laughs> it off, but it kind of immediately let me know it's not going to be an adult novel. I, so I decided to try to make it an essay. I was like, well, the New Yorker is going to love these essays. <laughs> um, and in the essay form... You're going to be it, David Sedaris. Yeah, of course. Of course. <laughs> yeah. um, I started writing essays and weirdly enough, those got... Uh, those got bogged down in the necessity to explain um, um, Iranian politics. 
to an adult audience in a nonfiction format, you really have to go into what the revolution's like complexities are. And it is a very complex revolution, especially if you layer on top of it, the relationship with the West. Um, and so I found myself writing pages and pages about modern Tehran and what it means to have these like, br like the brutalist sculptures of the Ayatollah replacing the Shah in the little roundabouts of Tehran. And you're just like, what are you doing? Like, you know, you do the research for a solid month and you write 10 pages and then you look at it and go, oh, is anybody going to be interested in this? <laughs> and so... I was puling to my friend who's a children's book editor in a cupcake shop and the six years into a failed attempt at this book. And she just looks at me and said, well, didn't this all happen when you were a kid? And I was like, yeah. And she goes, why don't you just write it from the moment where this emotionally mattered to you? And I, I said, you're absolutely right. Just go back to the moment where I haven't dealt with some of these things and i don't care what the politics of iran is mm. and i don't even understand half that politics anyway yeah all that matters is the stuffed animal and um so i rewrote that scene mm. again from the perspective of a 12 year old and i just unlocked from from there so, so you're not david sedaris you're bro i'm not even close uh, harper lee now <laughs> I'm not, I'm, I, we can't name any of those names uh <laughs> yeah so, but yeah, you try you, with these things, you say these names as North stars, you know, um, <laughs> not as, uh, not as colleagues or anything. Hmm. Uh, we, I, we have a, a reader question here. That's slightly, slightly changing the subject, but Rosemary says that she used this book for a guided discussion and reading with a, good one. A, a group of teens. <laughs> and then at first they were uh, really hung up on poop. But to distract them from that, <laughs> uh, she led them to discussing what you meant by the the statement, a patchwork memory is the shame of a refugee. And she asks, I've never been a refugee before, but I know that I've had the privilege of living my childhood memories through until I reached adulthood. Sometimes I was an unreliable narrator of my own life and had to repent and be a better person. If my childhood had been interrupted by such an uprooting as yours, I imagine my memories would become fragmented and unfinished. That's what we came up with, she says. What did you actually mean? And why did you choose the word shame in that quote? Well, she nailed it. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I think I think I, you know, I, I can't tell you the number of times a day I wish I had access to um some of these people you know the the notion like I'm, I'm writing a picture book about rugs because my grandmother wove rugs um mm. it's shameful to have to research rugs as a persian <laughs> whose grandmother is an expert in this it's shameful i feel ashamed when i click on wikipedia and read what that is um because yeah. she wanted to give it to me um, and if I was smart enough, uh, I would have wanted to, to receive it in the time we would have had together. And, um, and I, I think it's, it's sort of, so it puts you in this position of, uh, you know, I, 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 um, feel, feeling as though, and I think a lot of the, like third culture kids will talk about this, right. As if they're, they're clearly not Persian enough to be Persian and not American enough to be American. Um, in a case of a refugee, like you didn't, you know, you are, you are sort of, it is, it's not your choice um, to, to leave. And so 
Yeah, I mean, I, I valorize these interesting, like I for a while there as a cook, I used to really love these. Uh, I'd go to uh, antique shops and see these kind of like, you know, those like Kinko's bound um, spiral uh, pages that are like church potluck recipes <laughs> yeah, of, like the, yeah, yeah. of 1947 <laughs> Rock Hill. <laughs> Like yeah. assemblies of God, and they'd like yeah. put it all together, and they just right. like, yeah. and like yeah. this is my nana's like potato salad, and it's like the worst. I, they're none of them I, with respect to your <laughs> nana. Um, they're not prof- they're not great. None of these recipes are ever gonna just be at the level of just go buy a professional cookbook. There was something so beautiful to me about those this passing on uh, that would happen, and I, I I think a lot about that. I think about the notion of just the the simplest linearities in our stories like you know the example i give little kids is if you go to your grandma's house and you see a tree in the backyard and it's a weird looking tree because all the other trees don't look like it um i wouldn't have known the name of this tree but i'd be like grandma what is that tree this is an imaginary version of my grandmother right grandma what is that tree and she'd be like oh that's a myrtle or whatever uh your uncle planted it when his when your cousin his niece was born his daughter you know his daughter and it's, it's just such a banal nothing fact. Like nobody cares who planted what tree where. It's a myrtle. Nobody cares about these things. These things aren't information that matters. They're not even information that would make it into a book. But they're information that would root you to a place and to build a linear path of information along any kind of family uh, history. And I I think about those. Those are the moments I had the uh, uh, the opportunity of those moments that I think about a lot and wish for. Uh, and it's the shame, I mean, it's, you know, there's a great line by one of my, you know, a book I, I bought as an editor by an author, I think is just wonderful. Um, his name is Hal Johnson. And he, he said, um, this is the first line of his, it's a YA send up of all these like uh, particular YA tropes of like vampire books or whatever and, and werewolf books. And it's called Immortal Lycanthropes. And um, the first sentence has always stuck with me. It said, um, it is a painful fact about humanity that some people can be so ugly that no one will be friends with them. It is shameful that humans can be so cruel and it is shameful that humans can be so ugly. Um, and I, was, I remember reading that and going, that is a spectacular first sentence to a novel. <laughs> um, and so I suppose I use the shame in that, in that sense. It is, it, it feels shameful to be in such a broken state, but that doesn't mean I, I associate guilt with it. I think sometimes people will read the word. Um, it is the fault of a refugee. And that's not the same thing. Shame and fault are not the same. Right. Heidi, go ahead. Um, my question is what happened to Mr. Sheep Sheep? I'm very attached to Mr. Sheep Sheep. This got a, a couple of people ask this. And I, <laughs> and then I do have a, a, a listener question as well, but I need yeah. to know. <laughs> Um, you're gonna break your heart Heidi yeah how true how true are we going Uh here no I want to know you want to know Mm -hmm. lamb chops oh no Um, (laughs) I wish I had uh, the kind of experience with my dad that would involve him bringing Mr. Sheep yeah fair Mm. yeah Um, in I was um, I was Mr. Sheep Sheep is, is not a thing it's a person right Right. Yeah. yeah. My, so my mom felt really bad about Mr. Yeah. Sheep Sheep all my life. And so um, <laughs> if you want to know a tick that my mom has is uh, put a stuffed sheep in front of her in any like 
flea market walmart or any store and she would come home with it during my childhood so for the longest time i had like 15 or eight number uh but a, a large more than dozen number of stuffed sheep on my bed as like a embarrassed 16 year old because she could like an american buying. sheep sheep and a persian yeah. sheep sheep and a, yeah mr sheep yeah, yeah. She tried to replace yeah. it for the rest of my life. Yeah, yeah, yeah. she really did. And I give Moms her credit for that. that. Yeah. yeah. And I, that version, that's funny. I knew I was sacrificing. I I, I wanted to have this um, thing because I, I did have that experience, just to be mm -hmm. clear. I had that experience with a foosball table, though. Mm. I was um I was obsessed with a foosball table that I had been given the birthday before um, we had to leave and I thought it was the most precious, incredible toy in the world. And I had had it for less than, less than some months before we had to go. And so, um, all throughout, I would like, I would get on the phone with my dad and we'd be in a refugee camp. And I'd be like, dad, can you mail the foosball table? And it's, it wasn't a full foosball <laughs> table, but it's the size of a, you know, the size, right. it was large. It was not small. It was the yeah, size of a piece of poster board. Right. Yeah. But it was big. And um, he'd be like, no, I can't mail you the foosball table. Right. But I'd be like, but you could. And so every, I had, I had just harassed my dad about this foosball table for years at this point um, when he's going to come visit us. And um, and I could have sworn it was the greatest toy in the world. And when he um, and when he brought it, he had not thought to bring Mr. Sheep Sheep. Um, Mr. Sheep Sheep had been lost in the yeah. field, right? So um, he didn't go back and find it, unfortunately. Um, and my mom was at this point, you know, hectically replacing them. Um, <laughs> but he showed up at the airport with this with this foosball table, and it was junk. It, like, <laughs> it was that kind of flat, that particle board that like bends and the yeah. nails were already coming off at two yeah. of the corners mm. and, and it didn't turn right. Like and he dragged us through an airport. Yeah. I was already too big for it. It was, I mean, it was the, the most embarrassing thing was he, you know, this, I mean, first of all, in, an encumbrance, it certainly was. And so it, it did give me that feeling of you know, he had done something loving. Um, I mean, he, he literally flew around the world with this thing. Um, but I, I couldn't even like you could, we scrapped it, right. I think during his trip. And I, that I always felt really guilty about that. I thought about trying to write multiple, you know, cause life is this way. There were two right. objects. There wasn't one. And I was like, yeah. you kind of have to imbue them all into the one. That's Otherwise, right. how many props can you have in this novel? And so I brought it into into the realm of Mr. Sheep Sheep, but I the reason I I, I actually again as I said I'm writing this follow ups and and my mom's obsession with replacing Mr. Sheep Sheep might, has to go in the store that has to go in there it has that to go but then it makes less sense of symbolic but that but has yeah, a you, lot you of symbolic of... weight. <laughs> Well, I'll you take robbed that yourself edit. a little bit, though. Yeah, I did. I robbed, you know, you said exactly. You robbed Mary to pay Paul or whatever. Or, <laughs> right. And so, in that instance, um, I may, I may work that. You know, and these are all kind of, you know, again, your your life, and you kind of have to try to um, make them cohere to some form. No, that was a good narrative choice. Here's a, here's have, a yeah. question from Joy. This is and this ties in exactly with what you just said, which is really interesting. He says, she says, I'm particularly interested in the question of truth in fiction as it relates to the character's guilt and shame. 
He has building layers of guilt in every section of this Chinese box narrative. That's nice right there. She says in parentheses, the bull, the baby owl, his mother getting caught in the church because of the chickpeas up the nose, having to leave Iran, his parents splitting, right? Um, And it all culminates in his father leaving. He comes to find out in the end that the foundational guilt he's defined by is not a true memory. And she's referring to the bull, right? What does this book have to say about guilt and identity in memory? You know what this is? This is a great question that you don't have to be the author to answer. <laughs> <laughs> so I suppose my 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 opportunity here mm-hmm. would be to say, Sean. <laughs> yeah, you 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 ranted about deckled edges, and now oh, you gotta man, now you gotta good, pay I'm for it. Payback, yeah. <laughs> uh, I, well, I'll take it because it seems like it seems like a fairly easy question, and uh, it's an excellent question. But she's already sort of brought out a lot of the work that the novel's doing. Mm-hmm. Um, and because I had um, not, not as extreme or as egregious, but I had parallel experiences in my own life. And um, I, I think the book says just that, uh, especially as a child, you, well, in the same way that you don't uh, entirely see your parents as complete people. <laughs> Uh, and so you you don't have a perfect understanding of them. You don't have a perfect understanding of anything that's happening to you. Uh, and memory can uh, be this thing that we long for uh, and that we regret not having more of. But it can also be this unreliable thing that, uh, that can kind of trick children into feeling uh, guilt and or shame uh, about things that they really have no, no responsibility for. And uh, that uh, it can be the uh, the power of, of a good story or a true story to sort of reveal that to you in time. Yeah, I think that's, I'm going to answer the question too, even though I was the one who brought it up. <laughs> I think please. that, um, you know, it's a foundational uh, assumption, I think a right assumption in um child psychology that children if when they are mistreated abused when something is put on them that's not their fault right all children think they don't think this person is bad who's doing this to me they think I'm bad right like they don't think I'm my 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 father isn't being a good father they think I'm not being a good enough child right and and that's universal that's yeah. That's not, that is a universal childhood. Ex- and that's, I think that's built into us as an adaptive function. Like that's supposed to be so that we can build trust with trustworthy people, but then that's not always the way it is. And so the question of guilt in memory, I think is just human. Like that's not limited to Hosra. It's, it's, it's a, it's, it's a universal experience that we, that children absorb the sins of the father. I think that's what the Bible is saying when it talks about the sins of the father being passed from one generation to the next. It's not It's not that, that the children are being cursed for their father's sins. It's that the children, like we absorb what is done to us and we have to tell ourselves a story about that in order for something that doesn't make sense to make sense. And the story that we tell ourselves is I did something bad. I did something wrong. I don't deserve to be loved. I, I have broken some kind of fundamental law that I didn't know about because I'm a child and I'm I'm too little to understand the world. And that's exactly what happens 
to the character in the story with the bowl. But it turns out at the end that that child was not, that that he wasn't telling himself the right story. And the right story is that that wasn't his fault, right? And and we as savvy readers see that the whole time. We can tell, right? We know that the killing of the baby owl didn't do anything to cause that, And that's right? where the pathos comes from. Yes. Our knowing actually is what creates pathos because yeah, we have right. a relationship with him. And so right. we have sympathy because we know that. Right. Which to your point that you made earlier, Daniel, about the other kind of fake memoirs that aren't really real, like they don't tell the true story because they eviscerate, they eviscerate the character, make this self-aggrandizing persona at the center of a novel and make themselves the hero of the story. We all recognize, we all kind of like get that that's not real and, and, um, and in attempting like people who do that, right. Those memoir characters, like, in in doing that, they actually dehumanize themselves because the truly human story is that we are we are the stories we tell ourselves. And it takes maturity and growing up. I like that you said this is a coming of age story, right? Like it takes these moments of clarity when at 12 is the appropriate age to be like, I did not kill that bull. I did not kill that baby owl. Like this, <laughs> I have to tell myself a new story. Like that. <laughs> And so it's really exciting to think about to to think about him being able to do that in the you know in an, in a new way, um, and hopefully a healing way for him. Do you, do you have anything you want to add, Daniel? No, I think you nailed it. I yeah, I, I that piece of psychology is really important, and we mm-hmm. we all have it. I think that I think a lot about this line um, from child roll into the dark tower came which is this poem about by robert browning and he's describing this i mean it's almost a microcosm of like a child mind becoming an adult mind and in the early part where he's a child mind he sees a horse and says um he describes it as a stiff blind horse with every bone a stare um right and just just this mangy you know almost dead you know it's it's stood stood stupefied in the field and he says this line that always has has haunted me. It says, uh, seldom went such grotesqueness with such woe. I never saw a brute I hated so. He must be wicked to deserve such pain. Mm-hmm. And the ability for someone to look at, you know, at pain and 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 um you know, it's it's a shocking sentence for a child to say, like he was in so much pain and woe that I hated him. I hated it and I assumed he was wicked to deserve it. That's where we have this backwards mentality sometimes. Um yeah. and so yeah, I think I think you're absolutely right. The beginning and the end. I mean, the, there's there's a reason it ends there. There's a reason he's he there's a reason at the coming of age moment. Um, I tend to I have a little bit of a habit of ending the minute the the question's been answered um in other stories. Like I don't do a lot, I don't love a lot of denouement. Um, and the minute he gets that answer of it will take blood and sacrifices are still deeply important and somebody's going to pay that cost and somebody's going to, you know, you're going to carry that weight, but you know, that you can, you can be free of the guilt of it. Um, kind of like at the end of, uh, end of Green Gables book one. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> That's right. Then yeah, it's just it takes off. I mean, that, then close the scene. That he got what he needed. Um, he the question was answered. Let's go move on. Yeah. Okay. Well, speaking of moving on, let me ask you one more question, and then I want to do some rapid fire. Do you guys have time? 
Sean, if you need to go serve it. dinner, then Daniel, you, good, you good with that? Okay. Um, well, there's a question here that it came up from a few different, a few different instances, but basically the question was something to something like this. Uh, a small thing that has struck with me since finishing the book last week is how Daniel introduces his sister's name almost as an aside when the book is nearly yeah. over in her most heroic scene. Why did you choose to hold her name back until the end? Multiple people answered some version of this or asked some version of this question. Oh, uh, no one else can answer that one, huh? Um, <laughs> well, it's why did you decide to be why tough? Why did I decide? Shoot. Uh, yeah. Well, look, throughout the book, naming is a very important thing. <laughs> the name, you know, the he's sort of in a toss-off way given the name of Daniel and doesn't know what to do with it. Um, when he disrespects somebody, he misstates their name, you know, every time, you know, he's, and he does that almost uh, pathologically. Like he will not remember your name if he doesn't respect you. These are all very true things about Daniel, uh, myself, uh, I will, um, say. And, and so as I was writing the book, um, that's, you know, that's a particularly challenging relationship for me. So I, I was not really, I wasn't able to write that name down. Um, I just couldn't do it. Um, and as I was going, I was like, I was noting that in myself, because that's what you do, right? You're writing this book over years and you're kind of noticing that I construct every sentence to make sure, you know, and it isn't there. Um, not, not out of disrespect, but out of, out of like, I really didn't, well, if you name the character, then you really gotta reckon with it. Um, and so you know, my, that, you know, one, one aspect of, I think of that relationship was I, I kind of softened that relationship quite a bit. I didn't want to really make it into a, it's probably the one I, in which I have the most challenge trying to like decenter myself or whatever you want to say, like not, not kind of make my case anytime it's just sibling. Like I want people to hear my case <laughs> on this. Um, and so I was like, if I can't, if I, if I write certain scenes, I'm I'm going to want to be agreed with by the reader. And so I just decided not to until the moment where the character um, is in that moment, you say, okay, here up until now, his problem with his sibling has been, he just wanted somebody on his side. He just wanted somebody to, to defend him. Right. And, um, and, to her credit, you know, when she's tested and every character gets tested in the climax of this mm -hmm. book and when she's tested, she passes, right? When she's tested, she stands up. And so I don't, the only part of that question I would push back on is it was not an aside. It was very much a moment of, a moment of spotlight, a moment of sort of reckoning, a moment of him finally being able to turn that corner and say, I'm going to pause the entire climax of this book. We're going to go into a parentheses and you're going to hear her name. And so uh, to that extent, it was a, it was very much a presentation of her name. Um, so she's the writer too, right? Mm -hmm. So has she yeah. gotten to respond to your stuff? <laughs> uh, yeah, sure. Uh, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah, go, go ahead. Finish that. Sorry. Oh no, just, just at that. Yeah. The name, it was supposed to be a, a mark of a moment of, of, of respect. And he sort of, as a character does that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay, let's do some rapid fire here because uh, there's a bunch of ones that I think you can answer without without getting too deep in. So um, I guess your marching orders here are Be 30 seconds. Be quick, yeah, <laughs> whatever. Okay, here's one from Chaz. Uh, my daughter, Michaela, loved hearing about all the food. We would love to try cooking authentic Persian food at home. Any recipes to share cookbooks you would suggest? Maybe you can just suggest a couple cookbooks. 
Yeah. Well, okay. So the OG, like the woman who started it all in the West is a woman by the name of Batman Pilich. It's great because her, the whole first last name uh, begins with the word Batman. Uh, and she's <laughs> awesome. Uh, just Google Bat- Batman Pilich and you'll get it. Uh, Batman and then G-H-A-L-I-G. Um, Bottom of the Pot is a more modern one um, and probably gets you, probably associate is a little simpler recipe. It's not so old world. You don't have to stand over a pot the whole, a whole afternoon, which is what the first one is like. Um, I take, you know, I take credit as a people for Samin Nostrat, who is, of course, she's Persian. She wrote Salt, Fat, Acid, Heat. I think mm-hmm. the best cookbook of the last five years, maybe 10. Um, so she she gives you a few Persian recipes, but she owns the whole food space. So you got <laughs> yeah. to give her a bigger kingdom than that. Um, yeah. But yeah, I would bottom of the pot's probably going to be a really great one um, to start with. Um, what do you think of the Autolenghi stuff? I know he's not technically like... Oh, great Mediterranean food, right? Yeah. But yeah, the Jerusalem Persian, cookbook's but, awesome. Yeah. He's yeah, and the, the, he does great breads too. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, sorry, oh, yeah, Olengi oh, is. I don't know. I don't actually know the chef very well. I only know the last name. But um, the the cookbooks are wonderful. Okay, uh, uh, here's one. Would you ever? This is from um, a listener's daughter, Anna. Wants to know if you would ever consider having the book made into a graphic novel. After she listened to it, she thought it would make a great graphic novel. I, I would love that. Um, right now, the conversation is about a musical. So, if you want, I, huh. let's see. I, if it comes of it, I, I was. I kind of told them I was like, I know nothing about musicals, just to be clear. And they were like, That's fine. You don't have to be involved. <laughs> oh, that's so interesting because of, they're like, We'll pay you, and then you can not not give us any insight on anything. Oh no, yeah, no, they were much. I, I'm, I kid. They they clearly would want me. I just mean on on okay. songs and music. I, oh, I I'm see, very I see. illiterate, but yeah, I could see that I'm being stupid. really interesting, though. You've got the, yeah. the the youth part of like the the middle school aspect, and then you've got all the Persian, yeah. um, the music different there, kinds and the songs of and... music too. Like I could yeah, right. see different it being genres. a yeah. really culturally kind of gorgeous yeah. crossroads. Uh, I would love for that to happen. I'd love for the graphic. I'd love to be involved in the graphic novel and in the film. I would love a director by the name of Tarsem Singh to direct a movie. Oh, yeah. But uh, who knows? You know, you dream dreams. Jazz wants to know, where do you get a hold of the bathroom kit you use for washing up back there? The bathroom kit? Oh, man. Oh, Chaz. (laughs) Yeah, he's a creative guy. We love him. He's a great listener. Oh, no, I mean, I, are, we, are we assuming I still don't know how to use the bathroom? <laughs> <laughs> hey, I just thought, yeah. you know, we should get it out there. Got uh, it. No, I'm good. I'm, he's uh, I'm all set. I'm all set now. <laughs> is Mrs. Mil- Terry wants to know if Mrs. Miller is a combination of people or is that a specific person? Good question. Combination of people. Yeah. Uh-huh. Combination of teachers that I adored. Um, and yeah, because it's, it's sort of the the events of the book kind of ha- are in, in real time were probably about three years um, and needed to be condensed into one. So here's a question. What happened to Ray? Do you know? I do. Yeah. He passed away um, due to stomach cancer when I was in college. Um, never quite got the uh, conversation or maybe even fist fight that I would have wanted. Um, but, you know, in a good way, maybe. <laughs> I mean, I mean, we never really closed in on what our relationship should be um, or could be or anything like that. He sort of, um, yeah, it was, it was a it was a sudden and um, unexpected. Mm. Debbie just mentioned that she loved Straw House, Woodhouse, Brickhouse, Blow. Uh, just wanted to throw that in there. Debbie, my heart. 
that's that's that is one of the few books of which I am proud. Um, and uh, thank you. That's. Kate wants to know if you've considered a companion cookbook yourself. If not, could you? Hey, there you go. I I would yeah no I would I would never that would be I know too many people who've <laughs> written really good cookbooks right that's I can only be a dilettante in so many fields but um, <laughs> that one I've ghostwritten several cookbooks um, as a as a young writer hmm. but by for people who are better chefs than me uh, Mary wants to know have you learned what happened to uh, Ali Shikari since writing the book. I wish. I really wish that this that um, somehow I could get connected with him. He went from what I am told. He went to Australia. Um, kind of lost touch. There's no pre-internet age. Every once in a while, I try to Google. There's no benefit to googling his real name. <laughs> um, yeah, it'd be nice to someday, but um, but no, I've never. Okay, uh, Hannah wants to know. This book makes me want to give One Thousand and One Arabian Nights another try. When I tried it with my local book club, couldn't get through it. Is there an edition or book or version that you would recommend? Uh, be interested uh, for recommendations from any. So, if Sean and Heidi, if you have one as well, whenever I hear that, I just say, "Get a new book club." <laughs> <laughs> it is a new way of reading. Like I, it is. It is not Western. It's not a yeah, Western right. story right. collection. And so yeah. you have to, it's almost like with, with you have to, it's like reading Pinocchio for the first time. You have to let it happen uh, yeah. and then you got to come back to it. Like, yeah. And that's, that's one, there are some, there are some books. There are other books that book clubs attempt to read and have a really hard time with. And sometimes it's just that month you need to get together and read the book aloud to each other. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't. I, I don't have an edition to recommend per se, but sometimes the change in strategy like that can be really helpful. Like a beautifully illustrated collection of a, of a thousand one Arabian Nights, and read it. I yeah. think it's a good read aloud. Yeah, it's a good picture. Yeah, like yeah, yeah. I think that's a really good family read aloud. I yeah, I agree with everything said. The quick thing is that the the public domain version was uh, translated by a guy named Richard Burton in the forties, and it's just got really old English. So it's if you want to read that version, it's going to be and it's the version that a lot of like bookstores have republished and things like that. It's wonderful. It's the classic. It's going to be hard to get through. Um, If you want something that's a little bit easier to get through, more modern by someone who's alive, who's translated it into maybe more, um, you know, uh, I wouldn't call it modern English, but English that isn't going to be as challenging. Um, Narib uh, Narib, uh, Mahfouz. Mahfouz is M-A-H-F-O-U-Z is a, a translator. One of his editions are the ones that I prefer to read. Like if I'm sitting on the couch and I want to read it, I go back to the Burton for historical reasons, but I read the Mahfouz version. And if you want the Shahnameh, the best, in my opinion, best translator in from Farsi to English is Dick Davis. He's a professor at UPenn, I believe, and he is phenomenal specifically in turning Persian poetry into English poetry, which is a wild challenge mm. um it, it, but it's in meter and rhyme in english and of course it starts off in meter and rhyme in, in farsi um and it still is in, intelligent and and quick-witted dick davis is somebody he's i would i would um i'd get really excited if i met him I would. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah there's a version from 2001 i think the translator is named yasmin seal and it's a big illustrated annotated version 
I mean, it's the kind of book that's like, you know, $45 with really good that illustrations. Yeah. Um, that we have that at the shop. I know we always keep that one around. I don't, I don't, I can't speak to whether the uh, translation is, uh, it's great. You know, any good? Yeah. Yeah. Well, and the translation is like the translation is ac- it needs to be accurate on that side and delightful on this side, you know? Yeah. Mm. So you, it's like, she nails, you know, it's like, it's good. Yeah. Um, okay. Uh, when I show up at your house, what are we going to, what are you going to cook for me? Oh, we got it. We have to do the interview. You got to tell me what your favorite things are. Like what dessert do you have for your birthday? Pie. He has pie. No, pie? no. I, so, <laughs> no. So this is the great thing. Growing up, I do. Well, I do love pie. That's the thing. I, I love mm-hmm. pie. But growing up, my mom would make me rice pudding. Oh, that's right. Because I loved rice pudding. So no one yeah. else, everyone else in my family was like, why are you making rice pudding? Why did you ask for rice pudding? I, we wanted chocolate cake. And they'd get annoyed with me because a couple of my siblings didn't like it. But then I realized not only do I like it, but half of my siblings don't like it. And Bingo. so therefore, this is right. how is this? Win, Easy, win. Man. We're going to do 16 handles, but rice pudding style. We're going to do a base rice pudding. And then we have all the different ingredients, right? Of the fruits and the fudge and the cheesecake. And then you can just make your own. Rice pudding bar. Don't go without me. Yeah, that's right. Don't go without me either. Lot, you guys just got to come visit. I mean, it's like an hour drive I come for me. visit all the time, so you do, you I will. Do. Yeah. Please Sean, come. Or, this is uh, on you. I can just close read something. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's right. We'll just come and get together, and we'll do some discussions on some Iranian poetry or well, something. He, yeah, no, Dream. he can teach us. There you Dream. go. I think that about covers it. I mean, there's so many great questions in here, um, but, you know, I, I think we should end there. Um, for the sake of time, we could we could do this for forever. Uh, Daniel, this has been so fun. Thank you so much for for coming on, and uh, it's it's a thrill to talk to you to be able to talk to an author about choices that were made, and you know how you thought about the way the things the way you thought about it, and just to hear your story as well. So we really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Again, I, it means the world to have the attention of of the likes of y'all, and and listening to the last three was was a real was a real honor to have you all sort of take it in and give it give it the sort of respect that um, I would always any, I would dream to get. Mm. Um, and so, um, yeah, thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. It's the least I can do. Well, you wrote a, you wrote a book worthy of the attention. So, uh, Heidi, anything you want to say? I will take rice pudding as a thank you gift. Yeah. You got it. Doesn't mail well. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm gonna be out there. I'm, we're serious. Yeah, no, this Good. is not polite. We're gonna be there. <laughs> yeah, it's gonna be it's gonna be awkward when we really show up. Yeah, Sean, Sean has to go. Sean has to go serve dinner to people. So, Sean, on the verge of doing that, what piece of advice would you want to ask Daniel before you're cooking? What piece of? Well, I've done most of my cooking. That's the. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> okay, plating, plating. What are you, what are you the, making? I mean, what are you making tonight, yeah. Sean? Uh, the the main the main is pasta that I made papadel and um, brisket ragu, and then uh, we're doing a fried pork belly with strawberry chili ice cream. Awesome! I like and, this. Uh, Sounds yeah. great. That It'll kitchen you're using there, my mom sent me a picture of this place that you guys oh, are at. My, my mom happens to be there. It's like looks like a semi-professional kitchen. Yeah, it's a commercial kitchen. It's great. Yeah. 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 All right. Well, this has been so much fun. Um, Daniel, anything else you want to say before we go or, or are you good? No, thank you. Uh, you know, in a lot of ways, yeah, as I said, my favorite thing is when when people have completely different readings than than I do. In some ways, it lets the book have a completely different life. Like not being the authoritative voice on it is delightful. So I hope people will listen to the last three 
and uh, take those, you know, take that on and and like that that part of the conversation. More than privately, the answers. Yeah. Privately, we might have to have a conversation sometime about what you disagreed with our takes. <laughs> Fair <laughs> uh, uh, that would that would be very interesting to to hear to hear your thoughts on that. Um, all right. Well, for Heidi White and for Sean Johnson and for Daniel Nairi, I'm David Kern. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time, happy reading. Thank you.